Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider what happens when one moment changes everything for a writer. Ellen McGarrahan was a reporter at the Miami Herald in 1990 when she volunteered to witness the execution of Jesse Teferro, who'd been convicted of killing two police officers. She has been haunted ever since by what she saw at the execution and by the many questions raised regarding whether Jesse was in fact guilty. After his execution, many people, including two noted death penalty scholars, concluded that he wasn't guilty. As a result of what she experienced, Ellen left journalism, became a private investigator, and reinvestigated the murders of the police officers in an effort to determine whether she'd witnessed the execution of an innocent man. We have long wanted to cover true crime on the podcast, and I, for one, am fascinated by what it's like to be a private investigator. So when we learned that Ellen had written a critically acclaimed book about how she used her skills as a private detective to find out what actually happened during the course of this crime, we leapt at the chance to invite her on the show to talk with us. And we're so glad she said yes. Her book is called Two Truths and a Lie, A Murder, A Private Investigator, and Her Search for Justice. It raises fascinating and profound questions about truth, complicity, and our criminal justice system. Ellen's search for the truth was relentless and at times dangerous, and she uncovered far more about the crime than was ever publicly known before. Two Truths and a Lie is an Edgar Award finalist, a New York Times Book Review editor's choice, and one of Marie Claire's 10 best true crime books of the year. Ellen worked for 10 years as an investigative reporter and staff writer at newspapers including The Village Voice, The Miami Herald, and SF Weekly. In 1996, she began working as a private detective and has since founded a private investigation agency. We started by asking Ellen what it was like for her as a journalist at the Miami Herald in 1990 when the Florida governor signed Jesse Teferro's death warrant and why she volunteered to go to his execution. Here's what she said. I was 26. I was more or less on a pretty good career path. I'd been at the Herald for Oh, gosh. A couple of years. And I was a reporter in the Capitol Bureau. I was the youngest reporter, and I was the only woman. I was actually the only woman who'd been in the uh, promoted to the Bureau in, in kind of anybody's living memory. One of my beats was covering the Department of Corrections. But the way it was at the Herald at the time, when the governor signed a death warrant, it was kind of up to the reporters in the Bureau whether they were going to put their names forward. It wasn't something that the newspaper was going to make you do. But I decided that it was something that I felt was a responsibility for me to do. I wanted to, uh, I was a serious reporter and I wanted to be kind of a good reporter to kind of, you know, prove to myself and to my bosses that I could really do the job. And also I felt like it was a, you know, witnessing was a duty on the part of all of us newspaper reporters, the media witnesses. We, you know, went in there to basically be the eyes and ears of the people of the state of Florida as to, you know, how the death sentences were being carried out. So for all of those reasons, I thought it was something that I really should do. 
I want to talk for a second about what your friend Tex predicted would happen at the execution. He's a reporter as well, and he had already witnessed two executions by electrocution. He told you, they sit up straight when the juice hits them, and then they slump forward and they're dead. The worst part about it, babe, and I mean this, is the long, boring drive back home. That is not how Jesse Teferro's execution went. And I know this must be difficult to talk about, but um, it it is at the heart of the book. And also, I think it's important for everyone to know, given that we still have the death penalty in the United States. So can you tell us a little about what happened at the execution? Yeah. And it it is difficult, even all these years later, for me to talk about. So I think I might end up reading a little bit about it. Okay, great. The electric chair in Florida was in a town called Stark, which is a really rural place. And it's not close enough to anything um, to be able to kind of go there and back, at least to where I was working. I was in Tallahassee. So I drove across the panhandle of Florida um, through the woods at night and ended up in a kind of a ramshackle motel on the outskirts of Stark, where I spent some very restless hours. And I got up early. We had to be at the prison, the media witnesses at the prison outside while it was still dark. The execution was scheduled for seven in the morning. So we got there before dawn. We stood in a field outside the prison. Uh, Remember, there was white mist rising from the grass and the prison across the road was completely lit up like a firefight. You know, it was just a beacon, bright, mm-hmm. bright, bright, surrounded by barbed wire that was shining. The prison van came out through the gates to pick us up. And then we went back through the gates and we went through a metal detector. We went into a little room where we were kind of strip searched. You know, I was padded down underneath my shirt to make sure that I wasn't carrying any weapons. And then we went back through the the metal detector again, and um, we went down into a small little room to wait where we met with the prison spokesman. And he told us about uh, Jesse Teferro's last meal and um, that the governor had not issued a stay of execution. And then closer to seven, we got back in the van and we drove around the prison grounds, which were very, very, very quiet. You know, I think of a prison as a very loud place, mm-hmm. a lot of yelling. There are a lot of hard surfaces, sound kind of ricochets, but it was completely silent. To, mm. You could hear the, the doves outside the barbed wire fence in the woods surrounding the prison. And we came around the, the back of the prison to Q Wing, which was one was a separate room. It was like a little small building. And um, that's where the electric chair was. We came in and I was really surprised at how large the chair was. You know, I hadn't imagined that I'd be really right up close to it. Um, But it's very large. It's dark. It was bristling with straps and electrodes. And it's behind a sheet of plexiglass. And the witness chairs were just folding chairs on the other side of the sheet of plexiglass. So it was all like a really small, really close together room. Mm -hmm. And I took a seat by the window about in the third row back. And at exactly seven o'clock, the door in the back of the death chamber opened and they brought Jesse Tafaro. And he was between two guards uh, he was struggling. He was looking back down the corridor like like he didn't want to turn around and looked at the chair. But they, the guards turned him around. They made him look at the chair. They walked him over and they sat him down. And um, as they were strapping him in, he looked at every witness who had come to see him. He kind of looked directly at every single person. And I could see that he was going to do that. Um, but he was going to look at me because he was very clearly like, you know, you could see him look 
looking people in the eye and then, you know, moving to the next person, the next person, the next person. So when his gaze fell on me, I looked back at him because that was probably the right thing to do. And then they put a microphone in front of his face. He said his last words and then they gagged him and they put a hood over his head. And, um, and then they took a long black wire that ran from a junction box in the back of the death chamber and they screwed it onto a headpiece that had been strapped onto, you know, it was strapped onto his skull. It was under the hood. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then they turned on the power. And this is the point where I'm going to read. Yeah. So as you said, you know, Tex had witnessed two executions and he said, basically there was nothing to it. They sit up straight when the juice hits them and then they slump forward and they're dead. But I write, that is not what happened to Jesse Tafaro. When the electricity hit Jesse Tafaro, the headset bolted onto his bare scalp caught fire. Flames blazed from his head, arcing bright orange with tails of dark smoke. A gigantic buzzing sound filled the chamber, so deep I felt it inside the bones of my spine. In the chair, Jesse Tafaro clenched his fists as he slammed upward and back. He is breathing, I wrote on my yellow notepad. The executioner, anonymous in the booth, turned the power off. Jesse in the chair, nodding, breathing, his chest heaving. Then the buzzing again, flames, smoke. His head nods, his head is nodding, he is breathing. My prison-issued pencil dug into the page so hard that the paper ripped. I can see him sigh. Uh, they turned the power off again, and then after they turned it on for the third time, the prison doctor pronounced him dead. Mm -hmm. So that was, I believe, um, 13 minutes after they had, after he had first come into the death chamber. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I can understand why that was so hard to repeat. And we appreciate you sharing that yeah. directly with yeah. us. Not long after you witnessed the execution, you abruptly broke up with your, and I'm quoting you, beautiful, hilarious girlfriend. You quit your job as a journalist, which was the career path you'd wanted your entire life, moved out of state and got a job in construction, which was quite a pivot, right? Instead of witnessing and reporting, you were building. Do you have any thoughts about why you responded with the life changes that you chose? One thing that I was trying to figure out is why I thought that it was something that was okay to do. I felt a responsibility to witness as a reporter, but there was this other part of me that just kind of thought, well, you know, how could you possibly have just sat there and watched someone die? Mm -hmm. I think the other thing though, is that I kind of lost faith in the idea of truth. You know, I went from witnessing the execution and then I covered the very terrible serial murders that were in Gainesville that mm -hmm. year as the school semester was starting at the University of Florida. And then I went from that to, you know, the next spring, my job was to cover the legislative session. And I began to feel that, you know, in the, in the halls of the government and what my job was as a government reporter, it really wasn't to kind of dig deep. It was more to just report what people said. Mm -hmm. And that began to feel like something that wasn't true to kind of these larger issues and questions that I was starting to examine about life and death and the purpose of us all being here. And I, I just began to feel that it was something that possibly I was going to have to explore in, in a way that just stepped outside of everything I'd ever known, which is what I did when I became a construction worker. I grew up in Manhattan. I went to Yale. I studied history and politics and literature. None of that mattered in terms of... <laughs> right figuring out whether something is level or plumb or it's set correctly as a tile setter. And so it was just suddenly just throwing away everything that I had 
known to try to, to get to something that felt more important. I have to confess, Ellen paints such a vivid picture of what happened at the execution, yet my mind balks when I really try to imagine myself there, you know, sitting where she sat, watching it happen. It can only have been deeply horrifying, and it's easy to understand why it had such a profound impact on Ellen. I was initially very surprised to learn, given her background, that she went from her newspaper job to a job in construction, but I realize now that it makes perfect sense. There's an easily ascertainable answer to the question of whether something is level or plumb, and that's in stark contrast to having to struggle with, you know, did I watch the execution the gruesome execution of an innocent man. How do I figure that out? Yeah, that reminds me of a point Ellen makes in the book. She emphasizes that she believes in an objective reality, one that a camera would capture if it were recording. And it seems similar to that question, is it plumb or level, yes or no, what actually happened? She searched obsessively for the objective reality of what actually happened when the two police officers were killed. Ellen believed that she couldn't have peace unless she figured out that truth. But there's also a moment in the book when she acknowledges that her insistence on getting to the bottom of that objective reality might have prevented her from coming to terms with what she saw at the execution. So in other words, the same obsessive search for truth could have been a primary obstacle to her finding peace. There is practically nothing that's purely straightforward in situations like these. But we started off the next portion of our conversation with Ellen by asking for the uncontested version of the facts that sent Jesse to death row. Here's what she said. The crime was on February 20th, 1976, in a rest area just north of Fort Lauderdale. Florida Highway Patrol Trooper Philip Black and his friend, Canadian Constable Donald Irwin, were on a morning patrol of the rest areas. And... Uh, Trooper Black came across a beat-up Camaro with five people sleeping inside of it. Mm -hmm. Those people were Jesse Tafaro, Walter Rhodes, Sonny Jacobs, and two young children. So Black and Irwin woke them up, and moments later, they were shot dead. Um, Jesse and Walter and Sonny and the children jumped into the police car. They fled out of the rest area. There was a massive manhunt. They ran into a police roadblock, and they were all arrested. Walter Rhodes very quickly told police that he was innocent and that Sonny and Jesse had murdered the officers. And he testified against them at trial, and his testimony helped send them both to death row. Mm -hmm. And then not a year after Jesse's trial, Walter Rhodes confessed. He said that he actually had shot the officers, that he had testified untruthfully. And then he recanted that confession, and then he confessed again, and he recanted again, and he confessed again, and he recanted again, and he confessed again, and he recanted again. <laughs> in 1982, he confessed and recanted for the last time, and he, he reverted to his trial testimony. He said he was innocent and that Jesse and Sonny were guilty. Mm -hmm. In 1990, Jesse was executed, and in 1992, Sonny was released from prison because her sentence was overturned, in part because the court ruled that the prosecutors had not turned over to her lawyers a report of a polygraph test that Walter Rhodes had taken before the trial that conflicted with his trial testimony. The appeals court called it a damning report. Mm -hmm. And so the, the question in the case really became, did Walter Rhodes murder the officer and pin the crime on Jesse and Sonny? And if not, why did he confess? Right. 
And nobody asked you to reinvestigate the crime that led to Jesse's conviction. And of course, he'd already been killed. So figuring out what actually happened couldn't free him from prison if your investigation confirmed that he was in fact innocent. So what drove you to put your life on hold in 2015, 25 years after the execution, and go to Florida to investigate a crime that took place almost 40 years earlier? Yeah, I've asked myself that a lot. <laughs> and, and actually, and I, what did you say to yourself? I don't know. And I really tried not to do it was the thing. I had this sort of running conversation where I kept trying to put it in the back of my mind. So after I left journalism and I worked as a construction worker for four years, I was in San Francisco and I started working for a detective agency out there in 1996. Over those next years, I kept kind of encountering the story of Jesse Tafaro and his his innocence. I read about it. I saw a news story on 2020. There was a made-for-TV movie that came out in 1996. There's a very beautifully written play called The Exonerated, which puts forth Jesse and Sonny's case. At the same time, I was becoming a, an investigator where my entire job was to figure out like what actually happened in all these different kinds of cases. I was traveling all over. I was knocking on all sorts of people's doors. And in the meantime, this murder mystery in the center of my own life kind of kept growing. And my approach was to try to just say, it doesn't matter. You know, it's done. It's over. But I found as I went along that if I just would even see Jesse Tafaro's name, I could kind of feel a panic rising. It's like I was flashing back into the death chamber again. Mm. And I didn't really understand why, because, you know, obviously every year that went past was a year beyond that morning in, in May of 1990. But I just found that um, thinking about it and trying to put it out of my mind was in a way just just making it even grow more powerful for me. But my problem was that I really couldn't get close enough to examine it because it was just, it was too upsetting. And then in 2011, I think it was, the New York Times ran a story about Sonny Jacobs remarrying and it just blasted back into my head again, this thing that I had really tried to sort of say, it's fine, don't worry about it, it's okay. And my husband, Peter, said that he thought that possibly the time had come for me to stop running away from it. I was going to have to turn and face it. The thing that as an investigator bothered me about the stories that I was reading is that the stories, they're very straightforward. Walter Rhodes confessed, you know, he's the real killer. But I knew from the small amount of looking into the case that I had done before I witnessed the execution that two independent eyewitnesses had seen Walter Rhodes standing with his hands in the air at the time the shots rang out. Hmm. Everybody knows that eyewitnesses aren't reliable, but there was still that particular piece of information which was never sort of accounted for in the stories that I was reading. And I just couldn't square that circle. And it, it began to really feel like a haunting. Like mm -hmm. I needed to know who I was. Like was I somebody who had witnessed the death in flames of an innocent man in the electric chair or not. It was like part of my story in a way. I don't mean to sound too self-involved about that, but it was just like, what did I see? And, and what does this mean in terms of, you know, my journey here through this life? It was really kind of that basic. Yeah. I just realized that if I was going to have peace, I was ever going to be able to read a newspaper story about Jesse Tafaro without flashing back into the death chamber with this horrible buzzing sound. The electric chair made a terrible mm. 
enormous buzzing sound. I was just mm-hmm. absolutely going to have to figure it out one way or the other. And I also thought at the time, I was a detective with 20 years of professional experience. And I just thought, okay, well, I'm just going to see if I can find out. So when you were reinvestigating Jesse's case, you talked to a lot of different people with some knowledge of the crime who had different takes on what happened. How common is that in your experience as an investigator? And how do you go about sorting out what actually happened? I think that question really lands on the absolute crux of investigation. It's really common. You can get four people who see the same thing and they'll have four different recollections. And I think the way that I go about an investigation is to really try to talk to everyone and read everything with an open mind. I don't want to say fly on the wall because it's not an eavesdropping role. It's just as a blank slate, like completely blank. You tell me what you remember and then I will absorb it just as it is. And obviously then I'll ask you questions about it, but I want to hear it as purely as possible without me telling you what I think happened or, you know, trying to influence it in any way. And then just really looking at every single piece slowly and trying to do it objectively and to try and to see what the puzzle actually says rather than what I want it to say or what it doesn't say, you know, because obviously if you leave certain pieces out, you get a different puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's a completely true statement to say Walter Rhodes confessed. That is a true statement. You just have to add the other part, which is that he recanted it, which is what makes it complicated. How has your view of the death penalty evolved from the moment that you signed up to witness the execution of Jesse Teferro to now? Well, I was, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was brought up in New York City, and it was at a time when it was a pretty violent place. You know, by the time I was in high school, I'd been um, assaulted. I was assaulted when I was nine in a playground. Mm -hmm. I was um, violently slapped on a public bus. I was chased with nunchucks through a park. I was robbed at knife point. I mean, it was just absolutely sort of the way that it was growing up in the city back in the day. And so I kind of felt like if you break the law, you have what's coming to you. And at the time that I signed up to witness the execution, I kind of worked out this equation in my head, you know, that it's kind of a cosmic thing, I guess, about if you take a life, then maybe you have to sacrifice yours. And also, um, I thought, well, it's the law in the state of Florida, and this is part of my job. So I wasn't, I wasn't against it. But I did walk out of the death chamber that day, 1000% completely opposed to it. Just absolutely shocked. Yeah. And over the years, I went to work for the state agency in California that defends death row inmates, and I got to know what a death penalty case really involves in terms of the horrible crimes. You know, the death penalty defense is really focused on the defendant, but the victims were also, of course, part of the work that we were doing. And I just couldn't get all of the sorrow out of my head, you know, the horrible, terrible, awful things. It was just really haunting me. Um, There's the sorrow of the victims. There's the sorrow of the death penalty. It just seemed to me to be extremely sorrowful. Um, 
And then uh, the daughter of a friend of mine was murdered. And my friend reacted with an incredible grace and strength. Mm. It was beautiful. And I realized I didn't know the first thing about grief, you know, real grief. And that's where I've kind of landed. I've landed on the idea that I can't really tell anybody about their grief. You know, I think that the system itself is unjust and that we need to address that. Mm -hmm. But in order to address it, we really do need to take into account the emotions. We can't just do it on the facts. Um, I don't know really how how that happens. All I can say now is that I think it's an incredibly complicated, incredibly difficult subject that really does need justice and should rest in its complexity rather than in the very simplistic way that we're discussing it now. Yeah. You worked for a decade as an investigative reporter at, at newspapers in New York City, Miami, and San Francisco before becoming a private investigator. How are the roles of investigative reporter and private investigator similar, and how are they different? And what are the respective pros and cons? Um, and being an investigative reporter is a really good preparation for being an investigator in that you learn um, how to talk to people and you learn about public records, which are kind of the two key tools of the licensed investigators that I know and work with. And one of the advantages, too, to coming at being a private investigator from an investigative reporting background is that you've learned to do it without a badge. So you're not expecting to be able to have to compel anybody to talk to you. You basically have to go in there and see if they'll talk to you. Um, mm -hmm. It's different. It's different in a couple of ways. Um, the first is we do it almost all in person. And so you're not calling people or emailing them. You're showing up on their doorstep unannounced mm -hmm. to ask them the question that you need to ask them. And then in my experience, the other difference is that you're always aware that there's another side to the case. There are people who are working for the other side, whatever it is, everything that you're doing, they're doing, and they're doing it in the service of developing facts that are contrary to your facts. That's a real impetus to learn absolutely everything that you possibly can, whether it fits your premise or not. The key thing is for counsel to not be surprised in the courtroom. Yeah. And so you want to make sure that you are developing a really, really comprehensive 360 degree look at something. But I think quite honestly, also, you know, newspapers don't have the resources that investigation does, which is a terrible truth about the way that things are in the world now. And there are a lot of journalists now who have moved into investigation because of what's happened to the economics of the, of the newspaper industry. And so if you had those resources that the litigation world has for developing information and readership on local issues, it would be, we'd be living in a different universe. And I feel like that's kind of a, a sad thing about the transition is that you're taking really, really talented, incredibly skilled people out of public service, which I guess journalism to me is. This conversation raises so many vital questions. There's the sorrow of the death penalty and the sorrow of the victims, as Ellen puts it. There's the nature of truth and both the costs and benefits of seeking to uncover it. And there's this, 
Figuring out what happened in Jesse DeFaro's case was an obsessive pursuit for Ellen. She spent a tremendous amount of time and energy on it, at times putting herself in great personal peril. And she's filled the pages of a book with what she found, which in significant ways goes beyond what has been revealed to us by the criminal justice system. We don't want to say more about that because we want to avoid spoilers. But regardless, this is only one case out of thousands upon thousands. What does her experience say about our criminal justice system and its ability or inability to get at the truth? And what do we do with that? Yeah. I mean, you're the lawyer, so you're far more able to answer those questions than I am. I We're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <That's okay. laughs> or or, may, or maybe not. But I, which, all of which is to say, I have no idea how to answer those questions. Right. Right. And, you know, the other huge question that I keep coming to, especially lately, is how to determine or preserve or restore what's objectively true in the face of distortion or lies. And obviously, I'm talking about much more than Jesse Teferro's case here, and I don't want to digress too much or go on too long. So I'll just say I am heartened that there are investigators like Ellen out there who are dedicated to the pursuit of objective reality. I am too. And on that positive note, I will say that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Ellen at ellenmcgarahan.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie.